dragon. As always, it's very good to be with you here on the Lord's Day. Let me ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for this promise that we will feast with you in your house. We ask, Lord, that it would be in view of that, that we both worship you in the preaching of your word right now, and also long for and look forward to the end, so that we would be strengthened in this time where we suffer for you. Lord, we need your help, as ever. We're frail, we're easily distracted, we have many cares in this world, so much so that we would be distracted from hearing from your word this morning, but we ask that by your spirit it would not be so. That by your power we would listen to you, not the preacher, but you and your word. All glory be to you, O God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We live in a time in which people are eager to avoid suffering. And we can all relate to this. Um, there is a list of products that many of us own in order to avoid even the mildest of suffering. Allergy medications, Dr. Scholl's insoles, noise-canceling headphones, white noise machines, blue light blocking glasses, breath fresheners, sunscreen, Tums. We've all used many of those things. And we should be grateful to God that they exist. They are a mercy to us. They are common grace. But yes, there is an entire industry that is designed to meet the basic desire that humanity has to avoid any kind of suffering. And avoiding suffering is not necessarily even a bad idea. We're not masochists. We're encouraged by the Bible, for example, to live peaceably with all, so far as it depends on us. To wisely hide from danger instead of running to it. Uh, to not walk in the self-destructive way of the wicked. These are ways that we can avoid suffering in this present age. Even the way that Jesus preached often highlighted avoiding hell, avoiding the eternal suffering of hell. Avoiding eternal suffering is not the only reason that people should turn to Christ, but it is certainly presented by the Bible as a reason. So avoiding suffering, again, is not an unbiblical concept in and of itself. However, there is another biblical concept that flies in the face of this desire, and it's this, that suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. Suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. We should expect to suffer. We are told in the Bible that it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. We're told that fiery trials aren't strange for the Christian. We're even told that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And also that suffering for Christ's sake has been granted to us. It's a gift. And we're also destined for such suffering. The Bible speaks of suffering in the Christian life in this way. So suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. 
Again, we don't go after suffering. We don't go out there to try to suffer, but we shouldn't be surprised when it turns up, okay? Suffering well for Christ is the unofficial name of this sermon series through 1 Peter. And in our passage today, Peter addresses this subject kind of more directly. But we have seen this melodic line throughout this book already. For example, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, we read this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So in our passage today, Peter expounds more on this central theme of suffering with a focus on specifically suffering for doing good. Suffering for doing good. And here is the main point that we want you to be encouraged by today and to take out into the spiritual battlefield. It's this. Because Christ suffered to save you, be ready to honor Christ in your suffering. Because Christ suffered to save you, be ready to honor Christ in your suffering. We're going to see this unpacked in our passage today. And because this is what the passage does, we're going to focus on the second part of that statement first, and then we'll go back to the first part. Let's hear from God's word first, considering the challenge. The challenge. Be ready to honor Christ in your suffering. Verse 8 begins with the word, finally. And what he's doing here is he is wrapping up this section on submissiveness that we've covered over the last three First Peter sermons. Submissiveness for the sake of doing what is honorable in the sight of unbelievers. He encouraged Christian citizens, wherever they live, to be subject to the government. Christian servants to be subject to their masters. And Christian wives to be subject to their husbands. And now putting a bow on it, he says this in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. All of you. So first he was addressing three different groups of people, and now he says all of you. We are to have, verse 8, a unity of mind. Unity of mind. This is something that we should strive for. We should be united. Every Christian, ideally, would be united in how we think. We would be united in what we believe. This is why we have a statement of faith as a church, for example. This is why Pastor Corey is right now spending hours in our Membership Matters class going through that statement of faith, and we ask people to sign off on it, affirming either that they completely agree with the document, or at least they're, not willing, they're willing to not teach against it in any way. It's not because we're trying to unite under the statement of faith, per se. We're trying to unite under what we believe the Bible teaches. Now, it's true that we, that we have good brothers and sisters in Christ 
who may disagree with certain aspects of that statement of faith, that's true. The biggest ones probably being on the subjects of baptism and predestination. But even though we're brothers and sisters in Christ and willing to say, we will see you in heaven and we'll work together with you in the gospel any way that we possibly can, the reality is we can't all be correct in these areas. Our goal as a church, and more specifically, as a local church, should be to have a doctrine that is biblical and true and to be united under that doctrine. In other words, should we strive for unity or should we strive for faithfulness to the word of God? Yes. We need to strive for unity and faithfulness to the word of God, not sacrificing one for the other. And while we may do that imperfectly now, we will have it perfectly in the end. We will all be perfectly united. No disagreements, all a right understanding of God and his word. And even though we may do it imperfectly now, still we are called, verse 8 says, to have unity of mind. We're also called in verse 8 to have sympathy. Sympathy. This means to feel with someone, to suffer with someone. It means rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. It means going through these fiery trials hand in hand and not forsaking your brothers and sisters in Christ to suffer by themselves. Sympathy, unity of mind. We're also called to have, verse 8 says, brotherly love. Brotherly love. This is the translation of the Greek word Philadelphia, which literally just means brotherly love. And the, the word highlights the reality that Christians, those who trust in Jesus Christ, are actually brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a real thing. Corporate America loves to use this family language. Right? You're part of the Wells Fargo family. I understand the analogy they're making, but it's not real family. I was only part of their family until they stopped paying me to work for them, right? <laughs> for brothers and sisters in Christ, we are actually brothers and sisters. We're not just siblings for pretend. We are actually siblings. We are actually adopted into the same family. We have the same father. We have the same older brother, his son, who saved us. And we have the same Holy Spirit who unites us into the same family. And therefore, we are to love one another. How easy it is for us to forget that. There are certain things that we will do to each other, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would never do to our blood relatives. Very rarely does even an unbeliever completely cut off his family members, and yet Christians do it all the time to each other. There are deep divides, even in the Reformed community, even in the Reformed Baptist community, okay? A famous pastor will do something or say something that we don't like, and we will cast him out faster than you can say leftist. In the extreme, some Christians will even doubt that person's salvation because of their position that they take on a minor issue. Or even if they're willing to say, yeah, he's, he's a believer, They'll treat him as if he's not part of that family. Don't hear this wrong. It is important to stand for truth. 
It is important to have healthy conflict in the family and to speak truth to one another in love. And there are situations that we do need to treat family members as if they're not family members, and namely, that's if they refuse to repent of their sins or their heresy, and we have done absolutely everything that we possibly can up to that point to help them. But the overarching principle is that every follower of Jesus Christ is a member of the family of God. And we are called to have brotherly and affectionate love toward one another. We're also to have, verse 8 says, a tender heart, a tender heart. We should have a certain softness and compassion towards each other, a softness. This is, again, not something that those in the Reformed tradition are known for. But we should be. We should be known for softness and compassion. Those who understand God's grace best should display God's grace best. No? Let me say that again. Those who understand God's grace best should display God's grace best. Those, those who recognize the utter dependence that people have on the Holy Spirit in order to have correct doctrine and practice ought to be the most patient and generous and prayerful brothers and sisters in Christ. We should have a tender heart. And we should also have, verse 8 says, a humble mind, a humble mind. We should recognize that without God, we are nothing. And if we are nothing, then we have no reason to be boastful. We have no reason to be arrogant or proud. We shouldn't think of ourselves as better than other people. So this is how we're to interact with each other. And Peter then addresses how we ought to be with outsiders, namely hostile outsiders. Verse 9 says this, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, while this principle is certainly true in the context of in the church as well, within brothers and sisters in Christ, Peter is probably talking about evil or reviling from those outside the church. We'll see that as we read it in the context of the whole passage. There will be some unbelievers who will do evil toward us. They will revile us. Someone online today said they hate me because I'm preaching the gospel. That was a good, quick application of this. Peter's probably recalling the Savior's words that he heard from the Savior's own mouth in Matthew 5, 11 through 12. He says this, Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 11 through 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christians can expect evil to be done to them on account of Christ. And this is not a new phenomenon. Those who have been sent by God to speak his word have been persecuted throughout all of history. We can also expect to be reviled. To be reviled means to be subjected to verbal abuse, scorn, and contemptuous language. So some believers, unbelievers rather, are going to seek to harm us with their evil actions and their wicked words. But Peter tells us not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. 
Jesus says in Matthew 5, 39 through 41, same chapter of Matthew, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Our instinct, when we're wronged, is to retaliate, right? But that's not what the Savior teaches. And therefore, that's not what Peter, Christ's apostle, teaches here. Instead of repaying evil and reviling, we are, verse 9 says, on the contrary, to bless. And again, Peter is not making this up. He's simply echoing his Savior's teaching, such as we see in Luke 6, 27 through 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To bless someone means to speak well of someone, to speak well of someone. And that is in sharp contrast to the reviling that is being done to us. When God blesses us, when he speaks well of us, we receive blessings because God is actually the one who can speak things into existence. But when we bless others, what we're doing is we're praying for them and we're hoping for the best for them. Verse 9 tells us that one of the reasons that we should do this is that we were called to this. We were called to this. This is what our Savior has commanded us to do. There is a very real sense in which the answer to the question, why should I bless someone who's doing evil toward me and reviling me, is because Jesus says so. That should be enough. That should be reason enough for us. But having said that, the command also comes with a promise. The second half of verse 9 says this, For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. God is gracious, and he is pleased to bless those who walk in this way. And to buttress this point, Peter quotes Psalm 34 in verses 10 through 12 of our passage when he says this, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. These verses should be seen as general principles. So generally speaking, you will love life and see good days if you keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. God blesses those who mind their tongues. The psalmist calls for such people to turn away from evil and to do good. He encourages them to seek peace and pursue it. And in the context of that passage, peace in verse 11 seems to be talking about peace with other people, but certainly peace with other people brings a certain inner peace as we experience the peace of God in our obedience. So we ought to, as Christians, pursue peace with other people. And that's why Paul encourages us in Romans 12 to, as far as it depends on us, live peaceably with all. And the reason that the psalmist gives for why someone should keep his tongue from evil or, or their lips from speaking deceit, to turn away from evil and do good, 
and seek peace and pursue it is this, verse 12 of our passage. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. And I may ring a bell for you for something that was preached last week where husbands, uh, Peter says to the husbands about their prayers being hindered if they don't honor their wives, right? If you don't act righteously, your prayers will be hindered. Not because you're trying to curry God's favor, but because he disciplines those whom he loves. If you are rampantly repaying evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, if that's your MO, you shouldn't be surprised when it feels like God isn't answering your prayers. On the other hand, when you are walking with the Lord more faithfully, you shouldn't be surprised to see the Lord grant you more of your requests as you are in line with his perfect will. James 5.16 says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, what we're not saying is that if you sin, God is just going to totally ignore you. Neither are we saying that if you obey, that God is obligated to give you whatever you want. But what we are observing from the Bible is that generally speaking, when you obey, it will go well with you by God's providence and by God's blessings. And if you disobey, it will not go well with you. These are some of the motivators that God gives us in his word to obey him including in the area of not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but instead blessing those who persecute us. Peter continues in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Again, the general principle is that if you do what is good, it's going to go well with you, generally. Look at even the ministry of Jesus, for example. Because he did much good, many followed him. Many listened to him. He was so popular at one point that those who hated him were afraid to do anything to him because they were afraid of the crowd. This, uh, there, there was also a season in Acts when even the church and the apostles were well-liked. Granted, it was a short season, but it's in there. Acts 5, for example, says that even those who didn't dare join them held them in high esteem. We also know this from personal experience, right? Generally speaking, if you are a good neighbor, your neighbors will like you. If you do good to them, you will curry favor with them. So we should seek to do good to others, and when we do, we can generally expect not to be harmed. However, that is not always true. That's evident from the fact that eventually, the crowd cried, crucify him. It's evident from the fact that all but one of the apostles were martyred. It's evident by this whole letter that's talking about suffering well for Christ. And it's also evident from many of your experiences that despite your loving kindness to your friends and family, some of them have still cut you off because of your Savior. It's this reality that our goodness doesn't always curry favor with people that prompts Peter to say in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Sometimes when we do the right thing, we suffer for it. But even if that happens, God is pleased to bless us. 
Peter goes on to say in verse 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Again, Peter's calling back to more of the Savior's teaching in Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says this, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. One brother said something like this, the worst our enemies can do is send us to heaven and make us partakers of that which we desire most. Bring it on. Yes, saints, those who hate God can kill our bodies, but they cannot kill our souls. And in the end, we're going to be given new and glorious bodies anyway. So have no fear of them. The worst they can do is send you to Jesus. We don't have to fear them, and we don't have to, verse 14 says, be troubled. We don't need to be stirred up. We don't need to be anxious at the reality that we may suffer for righteousness' sake. God is in control. Nothing is going to happen to us unless it's part of his perfect plan. And he works all things together for our good, we who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Instead of fearing them and instead of being troubled, we read in verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Our hearts, according to the Bible, is, is not just the seat of our emotions. We often use the word heart that way in English, but that's not how the word heart is used in the Bible. The heart is the core of our very being. From the bottom of our hearts, we ought to honor Christ the Lord as holy, verse 15. Jesus is the Holy One of God. He is set apart from everyone else. There is none like Him. Ephesians 1.21 says that He has been seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is how Christ is to be honored. It is the holiness of Christ that can motivate us not to fear unholy men. Christ the Lord is holy, worthy of our wholehearted honor. And one of the ways that you honor Christ the Lord as holy is, verse 15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. A lot of good brothers and sisters point to this verse as a justification for apologetics. And after all, the, the word that's translated as defense is apologia. But we respectfully disagree that this verse is talking about apologetics in the sense of using pieces of evidence to show that Christianity is viable. Okay? We actually think that apologetics is a worthwhile endeavor. Apologetics can encourage Christians. Apologetics can open the door for the gospel. And if you want us to prove it to you, we're even holding an apologetics core seminar in this room at 945 on Sundays. So don't hear this as saying the pastors hate apologetics, okay? Apologetics is useful, but that's not what this verse is talking about. An apologia is simply a well-reasoned reply, a thought-out response. So for example, in Acts 22, when Paul gives his apologia, when he gives his defense, he doesn't appeal to reason or logic or scientific evidence. He simply tells them what happened to him on the road to Damascus. 
So in that case, in Acts 22, his defense, his apologia, was simply his testimony. He didn't try to prove any of it to them. He just told them it happened. And that's why he's acting the way he is now. But the point that we're making here is that Peter isn't talking about apologetics in this verse. He's talking about Christians being ready to give a well-thought-out explanation when people ask them for a reason for the hope that is in them. What is this hope that Christians have in them? Well, recall how Peter started this letter in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our hope is that because Jesus rose from the dead, we have an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. Eternal life with Christ Jesus our Lord. That salvation is coming, brothers and sisters in Christ it is guaranteed for we who believe in him. That is our living hope. So if a Christian did not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but instead blessed, if a Christian did good and suffered peacefully for it, that's going to stand out. And when someone asks him, what is wrong with you? Why are you so weird? He needs to be ready to explain. And the defense is not a cosmological argument. It is not a teleological argument or a moral argument or any other kind of argument. The defense is Jesus Christ. Why do we have hope? Him. He is the reason that we are so weird in times of suffering. Who he is, what he accomplished, what he will do, he is the reason. Don't take your eye off the ball, saints. Again, we wholeheartedly affirm apologetics as a helpful tool. But evidences are not the reason for our hope. Christ is. And ultimately, it is Christ that people need to hear about. And that's how we honor him, the Lord, as holy. We also need to do this, verse 15, with gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. If you talk to people about Jesus with harshness, or disrespect, you undermine everything that you did by suffering peacefully. Speaking with gentleness and respect is a continuation of not repaying evil for evil, etc. Verse 16 continues, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Have you ever spoken with someone harshly or disrespectfully and then had a hard time sleeping because of it. In contrast to that, when you speak with gentleness and respect, your conscience is clear. When you speak thusly, verse 16 says, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. One example of this was, was the criminals whose crosses were to the left and right of Jesus. Luke 23, 39 through 40 says this, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, 
Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The first criminal reviled Jesus. The second one pointed out to the first one that Jesus had done nothing wrong. The first one was put to shame and will forever be remembered as the man who reviled the king who was on the cross next to him. Be like Jesus Christ. Have a good conscience so that those who slander you won't have a leg to stand on. The gospel is going to offend people. Don't let your delivery be what offends people. If people have something to say against you because you were being a jerk, that is not honoring to Christ. Verse 17 comments on that very concept. Verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. If you're going to be harmed or if you're going to be reviled, don't let it be because you deserved it. Let it be because you did good, honoring Christ, and you were hated for it anyway. So you need to be ready to honor Christ in your suffering. You can do that in your words, in your actions. You can refuse to repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. You can bless those who persecute you. You can do good and you can always be ready to give a gentle and respectful defense when people ask you why you have a hope that makes you act the way that you do. When you suffer like that, you honor the Lord Jesus Christ. So be ready for that. Having seen this challenge to be ready to honor Christ in your suffering, let's next look at the reason. The reason. Christ suffered to save you. Christ suffered to save you. Peter's already given several reasons and motivations so far in the text. You were called to this, God blesses you for it, and those who unjustly wrong you will be put to shame. But there's another reason on which Peter is going to spend several verses, and that is Christ suffered to save you. Christ suffered to save you. Peter begins in verse 18 this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Brothers and sisters, this is why you should suffer for doing good. Your Savior suffered for you. He suffered once for sins. Jesus suffered his whole life for us, but the suffering that Peter has in focus here is specifically the suffering that's associated with his death. On the way to the cross, Jesus was slandered, mocked, spat upon, beaten and whipped beyond recognition, a crown of thorns forced onto his head. And on the cross, he endured more terrible physical pain, his open wounds from the beating rubbing against splintery wood, nails holding him up through his hands and feet, the only way to take a breath to push himself up on those nails. On the cross, he endured more evil, more reviling, more mockery. Right in front of him, the soldiers gambled for his clothes. And that wasn't even the worst part of it. 
On the cross, Jesus bore our sins. He experienced the forsaking of his God and Father. And he underwent the wrath of God's judgment for our sins. Christ suffered once for sins. And he did it, verse 18 tells us, as the righteous for the unrighteous. Friends, in terms of going to heaven, we were not almost there and just needed a boost. We were running the opposite way. Not only were we undeserving of eternal life, but we were ill-deserving of it. In other words, not only were we unworthy of heaven, but we were quite worthy of hell. We sinned against God. We rebelled against him. We didn't believe in him. We worshipped other gods. We served only ourselves. We hated him. And we weren't ever going to change. That's us, the unrighteous. Jesus is the other one in verse 18, the righteous. He lived the perfect life that we could not live, suffering the whole way. Hebrew says that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He is the righteous one, and he suffered for our sins. He bore them on himself, verse 18, that he might bring us to God. We had separated ourselves from God because of our sins. And on our part, we were irreconcilable. But Christ the righteous suffered for us to bring us to God. And then he died. The culmination of his suffering for us was that, verse 18, he was put to death in the flesh. Can you grasp that? The creator of the universe having taken on human form, became, as Philippians 2.8 tells us, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power did that for us. And in his dying, he became the perfect sacrifice that humanity needed, fulfilling the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant and numerous Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. In his dying, he displayed the ultimate example of sacrificial love. Greater love has none than this. In his dying, death was crushed to death. Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. The next words verses are some of the most controversial in the Bible. And we're going to go through them, but it's important that we keep our focus on the main thing, okay? We can't get tangled up in the weeds of this mysterious passage and forget the point that Peter is making, that Christ suffered to save you, okay? So let's go through these verses focusing on the main point. The difficulty of this passage begins with a phrase at the end of verse 18, made alive in the Spirit. Some interpret this to refer to Jesus' resurrection. That is, after he was put to death in the flesh, he was raised to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Others interpret this to mean that while Jesus died physically on the cross, he continued to be alive in spirit in the spiritual realm. Both of those things are true, but it's unclear what, which one Peter's talking about in this passage. That part being unclear makes it difficult to understand verse 19 as well, which says this. In the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. 
One view is that Jesus preached or proclaimed victory over sin and death to the souls of deceased human beings who lived during the time of Noah. Where did Noah come from? It's coming. In this view, it would have been done before or after the resurrection as a proclamation of Jesus' victory over death and his vindication of the righteous. Another view is that this is talking about the time between his death and resurrection when in his spirit he went to the realm of the dead to proclaim victory over sin and death and to announce salvation to those who had died before his resurrection. Still others think that this is talking about the spirit of Jesus speaking through Noah in Noah's day to the people who lived in Noah's day. And others think that this is simply all metaphorical for what Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection. Whoever these spirits in prison are, verse 20 tells us that the reason that Jesus proclaimed to them was because they formerly did not obey. They were guilty of disobeying God's commands or warnings in the past, and because of their disobedience, they were imprisoned. Now, earlier we mentioned Noah as a possible interpretation of that verse, and that's because one of the phrases that complicates the understanding of this whole passage is what it says in the next part of verse 20. It says, When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So the plain reading of that phrase seems to be talking about the time during Noah's generation when God gave the people time to repent of their wickedness and turn to him before he sent the flood to destroy them. However long this time was, it seems that Noah was preaching righteousness to the people, perhaps warning them of the coming judgment. As a matter of fact, in Peter's second letter in chapter 2, verse 5, he calls Noah a herald of righteousness. Others think that this might be speaking metaphorically, and others think that it's even referring to the sons of God breeding with the daughters of man in Genesis 6. Again, whoever these spirits are, a question comes up. Why are they the ones to whom Jesus proclaimed? Why not all of the disobedient from all time? Perhaps Peter's using these people as a sample of the worst kind of disobedience and unbelief. Genesis 6-5 says of these, this group of people, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it was their wickedness and their continual evil that plunged all of creation, save Noah and his family, into destruction. Either they're, and the animals. Either they're being used as a representative for everyone who disobeyed God, or they were a specific group that was set apart to hear of Christ's victory from his own mouth. Not for salvation, necessarily, but for victory. Verse 20 continues to speak of the ark by saying this, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Noah's ark was God's means of delivering eight people out of all of humanity. And in that ark, they were saved from the flood. So, in summary, there are five main interpretations. Number one, the Spirit of Christ preached through Noah to the people before the flood, with Noah calling them to repentance, but because they disobeyed, they're now imprisoned. And if that's the case, 
The point that Peter is making is that just as God vindicated Noah then, so Christ will vindicate Christians now. Second, Christ in the spiritual realm with his body, or rather, sorry, in the spiritual realm while his body was in the tomb, so in the spiritual realm while his body was in the tomb, preached victory to the spirits of the wicked people who were alive during the time of Noah. Three, that same thing, but instead of it being to the people, he did it to the fallen angels who had operated in the world during the time of Noah. Four, Christ proclaimed victory to the fallen angels, but after his resurrection. In the case of these last three, the point that Peter would be making is that just as Christ was vindicated, so will we be vindicated. And then fifth, Christ proclaimed his victory to those who were in Hades, to the anger and anguish of those who were in the place of torment in Hades, and to the release of those Old Testament believers who believed in God's promises in Abraham's bosom. Which one of these is the correct view? Well, we hold to what Martin Luther said about this passage. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty what Peter means. <laughs> but whatever Peter means, the point that he's making is clear. Christ suffered once for sins, and after he suffered once for sins, he was vindicated. He will never suffer again. And that is our hope as well, brothers and sisters. That's our hope as well. Remember what Peter said in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right now, we suffer as Christians. Sometimes we suffer for doing good in his name. But it is for our good, for our sanctification, and when he returns, it will be to his praise, honor, and glory as he raises us up and vindicates us in our glorification. So though, so though some of this passage is confusing, let's not miss the point that Peter is making. You're going to suffer for a little while, but this suffering is temporary. Christ is going to vindicate us and save us. I wish we could say that we were out of the weeds when it comes to controversial passages, but verse 21 says this, Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. The verse says that baptism saves you. Okay. Now we were, go we were going to have baptism today, but we'll have, we'll, we'll have to postpone it for uh, next week or the week after. But remember this for those of you who are being baptized and those who are watching the baptisms. Water baptism does not contribute anything to your salvation. Water, again, let me say that again for clarity. Water baptism contributes nothing to your salvation. But we do need to deal with what Peter is saying. So first, let's figure out what he means by that baptism corresponds to what he just said. It corresponds to this. And he just said that eight people were brought safely through water. Noah and his family survived the flood 
because of the ark that God instructed him to build. That salvation of Noah's family was a type of baptism. Just as Noah and his family were saved from God's judgment, so are we saved from God's judgment by baptism. But Peter makes it clear that he's not talking about the water itself. Look at verse 21. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. The saving is not about the physical cleansing that happens when you go into the water. The saving is that, verse 21, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. A good conscience is a state of mind that is free of guilt, free of shame, and and getting dunked does not provide that. God provides it. And he provides it through what baptism represents. Baptism represents our identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 6, 3-4 says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when a person is baptized, it is a physical symbol of what has already happened in the believer. What has already happened Namely, that they died to their old selves and rose to new life in Christ. That didn't happen when they got dunked in the water. It happened before. Okay? Baptism also represents our being cleansed from sin and guilt. Acts 22.16 says this, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. I think part of the reason of the difficulty that we have in understanding this verse in 1 Peter, as well as that one I just read in Acts twenty-two sixteen, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, is, is that we tend to delay baptism. So we remove kind of the, the cleansing and the baptism concepts. In Acts, they were baptized as soon as they believed. The Ethiopian eunuch is like, pull over, there's water right here. What prevents me from being baptized right now? So baptism was a confession of faith in Christ. And when you believe in Christ, your sin and your guilt are washed away. Not when you go in the water, but when you believe in Jesus Christ, are your sin and guilt washed away. And baptism represents that. Baptism also represents a couple of other things, like being incorporated into the body of Christ. It's also a public declaration of being one of his disciples, But what Peter has in view here is that baptism represents our having been cleansed through our identification with Christ. That's what saves us. It's not the water baptism. It's what the water baptism represents has already happened to a believer. The thief on the cross that was to be with Jesus that day in paradise never got baptized. But he experienced what his baptism would have represented had he not died that day next to the Savior. Notice also in verse 21 that this salvation, this good conscience from God, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What baptism represents is based on the power and the victory of Jesus Christ, who not only died for our sins, but also rose again from the dead. We talked about this 
on Easter. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the Savior of the world. It shows that God accepted his sacrifice and has forgiven our sins. It demonstrates that Jesus has defeated death and sin and has given us eternal life. It also assures us that God will raise us up also on the last day because Jesus lives, all we who believe in him are saved. And not only is Jesus alive, but he's also exalted. He's not in the tomb, and he's also not on the earth. Verse 22 says that Jesus is he who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Why does Peter add this information? Well, it's possible first that this section is quoting a hymn or perhaps a statement of faith from his time. But in any case, Peter shows us that Jesus is ruling over all things. Jesus, who suffered once, is the Lord and judge of the living and the dead. And is that not an encouragement to his readers who are suffering persecution and hardship for their faith? We have a powerful and faithful Savior who is watching over us, interceding for us. We have a glorious and eternal hope which has been secured by our risen and exalted Lord. We have a victorious and triumphant king who will come again to rescue us. He is in heaven on his throne. He is at the right hand of God, the seat of authority and power. Everyone is subjected to him. Angels, authorities, and powers. Ephesians 6.12 tells us this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, while humans may be the ones to persecute us, they are not our enemies. The enemy is the spiritual forces, the fallen angels who influence those humans. And as Martin Luther says of Satan, his wrath and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. But rest assured, friends, though that's true, though our spiritual enemies are greater than us, they are subjected to Christ. And he will one day put all of them under his feet. Let's tie this back to the main point. Remember that this section started in verse 18. For... Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ has been vindicated. Christ is risen. Christ has been exalted and is ruling and reigning. And all of that is important for our salvation. But before all of that, he suffered once for our sins. None of our sufferings can ever come close to what the Savior endured for us. And oh, how we should respond to Christ's sufferings on our behalf with gratitude and obedience, even when we're suffering ourselves. So, because Christ, who is now risen and exalted, suffered for our sins, we should be ready to honor him in our suffering. Because he died to unite us 
we should have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a humble mind. Because he endured evil and reviling for us, we should not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Because he has done good to us, we should bless others and do good. Because he suffered for us, we should honor him in our hearts as holy. Always being prepared to explain the reason that we have hope is him. And this is true, provided that you believe in him. If you don't trust Jesus as your savior, you are still in your sins. And if you die today, you will meet Jesus not as savior, but as judge. But the day is young. Turn from your sins now and to this blessed Savior who will forgive you even all of your sins. Brothers and sisters, how do you respond in the face of suffering? Do you have a tendency to be harsh, vindictive, foul-mouthed? Do you run from Christ instead of to him when you're suffering? Are your lips sealed about the Savior? Remember what he has done for you. Remember the suffering he endured for you. Ask him for his help to honor him in your heart as holy and to suffer well for him. Meditate on these things. Some of you may be experiencing a time of peace and plenty. Praise God. In this time of peace and plenty, do not neglect to reflect on the glory of your Savior's sufferings. That way, when trials come, and come they will, you're going to be ready to face them in a way that honors Christ. And as always, let's help each other with this. Let the works and the words of the Lord be always on your lips, whether that's before unbelievers or believers, because everyone needs to hear about what Jesus has done. And for the believer who you're encouraging, it's both armor and ammunition for the good fight that we fight together. Sermon in a sentence. Because Christ suffered to save you, be ready to honor Christ in your suffering. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for reminding us of the sufferings of your Son. You gave him, because you loved us, you gave him for that end, that we who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And yet he, our Savior, did not go unwillingly. He went for us. He, he set uh, he saw the joy that was set before him and went for us, suffering and enduring torments for our sake. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us in light of that gracious truth, that we would respond the same way when we experience suffering ourselves. For those brothers and sisters who are suffering now, we pray that this would strengthen them. And for we who are not experiencing great suffering yet, we pray that this would prepare us for whatever comes ahead for your glory and for your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray, amen.